Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me as always is my co-host and professor, who I think deserves tenure at Medfield College, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? I'm doing great, Andy. How are you doing? I'm swell. Hey, we've got a returning champion. Yes, Tom, welcome back. Champion. (laughs) Yeah, Tom Provost. Hey, you're a graduate uh, screenwriting professor at Pepperdine University in Malibu, and you're the writer-director of The Presence, starring Mira Sorvino and Shane West. Uh, You're the producer and instructor of a very popular series of classes uh, called Cinema Language, The Art of Storytelling in L.A., Texas. And did I see where you were in Canada? Yes, I was uh, teaching Cinema Language outside of Montreal, where it was negative five degrees. Awesome. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> and Tom has a wonderful website, um, onfoodandfilm.com, which is awesome. It's a great place to learn about movies and get some great recipes. And he directs an incredible LA-based nonprofit, Bags and Grace, which you can check out at bagsandgrace.com. Welcome back. Thank you. It's funny. That sounds better than it feels, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you got a lot going I on. I appreciate man. it. Yes, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Well, it's wonderful to be back. Awesome. Awesome. Larry, what movie are we doing today? We are doing 1960s, 1961's The Absent-Minded Professor, which is more more popularly known as the first of the Flubber movies, although right. Flubber doesn't appear in the title of this one. Right. Okay. Well, some key facts to set the stage and get us going. In 1958... Uh, Walt Disney attended a science and technology demonstration at the Brussels World's Fair. And the demonstrator was a chemistry professor from Princeton University named Dr. Hubert Aaliyah. And Disney had been working on a movie based on the short story, A Situation of Gravity, by Samuel Taylor. It was printed in a 1943 issue of Liberty Magazine. When Disney saw how animated Aaliyah was in his presentation, he invited the professor to Hollywood to meet Fred McMurray, who then mirrored Aaliyah's mannerisms for the role of Ned Brainerd. Uh, Medfield College of Technology is the background for a number of Disney live-action movies. We have Son of Flubber, The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, Now You See Him, Now You Don't, and The Strongest Man in the World. And of course, Alonzo Hawk is also president of Hawk Enterprises in Herbie Rides Again. Wait, 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 wait. Yes? Andy, are you saying... All of those movies, the Herbie movies and the Flubber movies, are in the same cinematic universe. Yes. And the Kurt Russell movies. Yes. Which I love. What? I Okay. Okay. I'm digesting this. You keep going. But that, <laughs> that for me, that for me, whoa. You just okay. had a brain explosion. Okay. <laughs> no, no. I. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> so the same movie. Same college. That's right. All all at Medfield, right? Everything happens at Medfield. The movie was nominated for three Academy Awards for Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, and Best Effects and Special Effects. And for good reason. Uh, if I might add, I think importantly, uh, Robert Stevenson, who I want to talk about a lot because he's amazing, was up for not an Academy Award for his directing, but for Director's Guild Award, DGA. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So the car footage is done with a combination of live-action wires, miniatures, mat, process work. There was a belief um, that these kinds of effects could only be done in black and white work. But these mechanical special effects are really the genesis for the effects we find a few years later in 1964's Mary Poppins and continue to be sort of the mainstay magic for Disney live-action throughout the 1960s and 1970s. And just as a total sidebar, because I, because, well, Tom's a recipe guy and so am I. Um, if you want to try to make flubber yourself, there are lots of great recipes online. <laughs> a lot of them include borax or liquid washing starch and Elmer's glue. But my personal favorite is simply a quarter cup of Elmer's with a half cup of cornstarch, a few drops of food coloring. You need that for 10 minutes. You microwave it for 20 seconds, let it cool off. And then you can knead it again for another 10 minutes. It's a great little project for your kids on a rainy or snowy afternoon or when it's five below zero in Montreal. (laughs) Fair enough. Okay. (laughs) Just, just a little, just a little sidebar. Okay. 
So while you're all making that, let's get into <laughs> the recipe for this movie. And as always, we begin with the Manish Tana. And the absent-minded professor uh, starts at a particular moment uh, in the life of Professor Brainerd. And I wanted to talk about why we start the movie where we start. Specifically, we start at a wedding. Uh, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering why we start here specifically. Andy, Tom, do you have any any reasons why you think the movie opens here rather than a previous moment or a little bit later? What are we supposed to learn? What are we supposed to see? Well, it sets up a crisis right from the beginning. We're at a wedding and it's going south. Wedding movies also are incredibly popular. It's it. Wedding movies are one of the most popular movies of all time. I'm always telling my students, if you want a successful movie, you might consider having it revolve around a wedding. So we're starting with something that's very popular that everybody can relate to. Almost everybody's been to a wedding. And we get this nightmare situation right from the beginning. Yeah, I think what's also interesting here is this wedding goes wrong, not because the universe uh, makes a series of wacky coincidences to make the the, the wedding go wrong. Uh, it's not that somebody shows up unexpectedly. The wedding goes wrong because of the character flaw of our protagonist. Uh, he simply cannot pay attention to to the flow of time. He gets so wrapped up in his work that he doesn't show up for his own wedding. And we know this is not the first time He's failed to show up for his wedding. I think they say it's the third time they've tried to pull this off. And they put in a contingency plan to try to get him to remember to show up to his wedding. So even before he appears on the screen, uh, we get a sense of who our main character is, what their flaw is, what their problem is. Uh, and right. And when we when we meet Betsy, we also there's another bit of conflict, right? Because we know she's got another suitor and Shelby. I mean, it's a little weird that he's driving her to her wedding, but <laughs> right. But we figure it out that that Brainerd hasn't shown up for the last two weddings. So maybe Shelby's hoping to seal the deal for himself. So he is definitely. No, there's not there's not even a maybe on this. Shelby is showing up to the wedding as like, look. If you still want to get married and guy number one doesn't show up, put me in the game, coach. I, I'm, I've been riding the bench all season. He's very proactive. He's, you know, an active I, character. I, I, can I just say that I saw this movie a zillion times as a child because it was very popular and they always showed it at summer camp and I would have to sit through it. And when I was younger, I didn't like it because I'm kind of type A. It's an understatement. When I was seven, I asked for a desk organizer for Christmas. So I had so little sympathy for this doofus who couldn't show up for his wedding. I was like, dude, get a desk calendar. I don't understand why you're acting this way. So I, I didn't have a lot of sympathy for him. Well, well, and what helps, I think this, what helps us like him, or at least what helps me like him is the prologue, right? Where we meet yes. Nettie the Nut. And it's clear that he's always thinking, that he's excited about yes. sharing discoveries with his students. Yes. Uh, we know he's a man about to be married. And he says, energy takes on many forms, right? And so, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that kind that helps us like him. The, the, the scene with the, the trumpet and the, the wine glass if he wasn't doing that, we would hate this character. There's there's also an interesting, because Larry's bringing up, you know, they're, they're trying to get him there, but they all fail also. And so oh, like, sure. I get I get frustrated when the housekeeper leaves. I'm like, do not leave. He's not <laughs> like, why are you doing this? Like, you're causing him to fail. And at that point, by the third time, I don't think it's his fault. Betsy's setting him up to fail. We're going to do it the same way we did it the last two times, and you're not going to make it. I mean, I mean, the truth of the matter is, Tom, you're absolutely right, because all what you do, where is his best man who is going to stand next to him and physically drag him to the wedding? Exactly. There, it's also it's very clear. Ned isn't making a deliberate choice to not attend his wedding. He's yeah. not in control of the way his mind works. And I think 
that's us looking at this from a very modern sensibility right. where we're looking at absent-mindedness as, hey, some people's brains just function differently from other people. They can get hyper-focused and tune out the rest of the world. Whereas it's neurodivergent, think, right? Yeah. You know, I think 1961, we look at it and we go, oh, you know, he really, he, you know, if it was just, if he just tried a little bit harder, he could focus. Uh, and I think the movie, I think the movie kind kind of is aware that it's not Ned's fault. And yet, yes. yet expect the rest of the world of the movie does treat it like it's Ned's fault. And there's never any recognition that Ned's brain just works the way Ned's brain works. Like it, it's treated as a character flaw, but I don't think it's something he is in control of and can work to overcome with, without, you know, possibly some medication. Exactly. And if he didn't have, I, I love movies where the character's flaw is actually their benefit. Also like, Yes. Aaron, Bro Aaron Brockovich, one of my favorite things, all of her incredibly negative qualities are what enable her, as opposed to anybody else on the planet, to save all these people, to have this huge injustice righted. It's her negative qualities that cause that to happen. So here also, this, quote, negative quality, his character flaw, is what enables him to invent flubber and other wonderful things, right? So it actually is to his benefit and the world's benefit that he has this, quote, flaw. Yeah, uh, th this is very much a movie. Well, I mean, I, we should get into plot a little bit. I'll, I'll just finish this thought, but but we should explore it later. This is very much a movie to me where the rest of the world needs to learn how to accommodate our protagonist rather than our protagonist learning how to fit in and function in the real world. Yes, I really uh, want to talk about that later. So, yes. Yeah, yeah no, <laughs> let, well, well, let's do that. But uh, let's get through plot a little bit. So, uh We've talked a bit. The exposition gets delivered, I think, at a fairly quick clip here. Uh, they don't make us wait long for the movie to get started. Uh, I'm going to, because I think we have a lot to unpack, I'm just going to point out, I think the inciting incident of this movie is the moment that he simultaneously discovers Flubber, but at the same time misses his wedding. It's... It's not a single inciting incident, but it is two inciting incidents that happen at the exact same moment. I feel like this is almost like the binary stars of um, of inciting incidents. These two things happen at the exact same moment, and both of these things propel the movie forward at the same time. The breakthrough of Flubber really keeps him from going to his wedding, right? But it also feels like it sets up the next scene, which is where I think the dramatic questions come in. You have Betsy shuts him down, right? And yes. Hawk's putting the squeeze on the college. And, yes. and we have two dramatic questions now. We have, will Ned recapture Betsy's heart? And will Medfield be saved from the clutches of a, you know, a greedy capitalist? Yes. Right. Um, and they're, they're very different plot threads. And yes. so it actually is a bit more of a complex movie and plot than it might initially seem because both of those threads are going in tandem uh, and they don't go at the same time. They have, you know, different resolutions, all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's, it's something that I think elevates the movie quite a bit. Yeah. There, there isn't a single antagonist in this movie either. His, his, you know, in a, I think more modern day movie, his romantic rival would also be the person trying to steal his scientific secrets. They would combine both of those functions yeah. into one character. But in doing that, I think a lot of movies create a character who is unbelievably uh, evil, right? Right. Like, like he wants to steal. He wants to steal your secrets and your and your fiance's heart, and. I kind of appreciated that the two antagonists have their own lanes um, and they have their own lines, which they're what one of them is is a softer antagonist than the other antagonist. But they both have lines uh, of of what they're interested in and they're moving towards that interest uh, and they don't team up. I was I yeah. was expecting that. I was expecting that, like, oh, things are going to get really serious when the two antagonists say, I want this and you want this. Let's work together. No. And I, I think that's surprisingly realistic in a movie. That's about I, Flubber. 
The only thing I would counter is that I find Shelby pretty awful and evil. It's terrible. And <laughs> if I might throw back to our previous episode, he's kind of similar to the Roddy McDowell character in That Darn Cat. That these Disney movies have these creepy guys who are after He's a pick me boy. He's a pick me boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I'm going to tell you I am a Shelby apologist. Um, <laughs> I, I I feel I feel like I feel like I can make the case for Shelby uh, in a way in which I can't make a case for for um what's his name uh yeah yeah Roddy Alonzo Hawk yeah oh right. oh gotcha oh, right sure well sure. She, I mean look she, she who knows she might be happier with Shelby more stable I'm make that case more let's secure save it. okay okay let's let's save, save it for it. character you let's take get it. the new plot sure 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 <laughs> all right so we have a lot of rising action. Uh, at the point where he discovers Flubber, his goal kind of shifts towards, now that I've done this thing, I need to, number one, prove to the world that I've done it. More importantly, I need to prove specifically to Betsy that the reason that I missed this wedding was because I've made the single greatest discovery since fire, right? He needs to, he needs to accomplish these things, and, and so in his mind, he's conflated. Uh, by by demonstrating the power of Flubber to the world, I will simultaneously win Betsy back to, to my heart. Uh, there are complications along the way, and this is all rising <laughs> action. Uh, Shelby, uh, Professor Shelby Ashton, wants to, clear very clearly wants to get Betsy to be his partner. At the same time, Alonzo Hawk, who is probably the only person who believes in Flubber, uh, wants to steal it away from Ned and, and sell it and reproduce it and, uh, and make billions of dollars. Uh, there's a basketball game in, in, in still part of the rising action in which we see, uh, oh, it's one of the, I think it's my favorite sequence in the whole movie, oh, yeah. uh, where, where he Big puts Flubber where he puts the flubber in in his team's shoes, and suddenly this really short team of basketball players playing against people twice their size are bouncing around the gym, and and it totally takes takes the game back. Uh, but but ultimately, none of that is the climax, and I don't know that we have a single climax here, or that the movie is even really thinking about what the climax should be. I'm, I'm going to say, once we get past climax, I'm going to tell you, I think this movie overstays its welcome. It was delightful up into a point and then just keeps going. Yeah, uh, I mean, I so, think the movie loses its way, right, in the second act, because it does stray from those initial dramatic questions. Yeah. Well, yeah when the so, so, again, will Ned recapture Betsy's heart? Will Medfield be saved when the government gets involved in this, right? We add this sort of third dramatic question with while never really answering the first two. And it's like, wait. And the conflict's no longer about Hawk and Shelby, who are far more interesting dramatically than these straight-laced dudes from the government, right? So so let's break these climaxes down one at a time and take them apart. Andy, I completely agree what you said. Uh, so I would say the first two climaxes, each deal, one deals with the romance, and one deals with Alonzo Hawk. Yes. And I think we were expecting both of these climaxes. And because these two, two uh, storylines are parallel to each other, but not necessarily coinciding, uh, wh what would you say is the climax for the romantic storyline, the love triangle, the trying to get Betsy backstory? I think after the dance and Ned's humiliation, you know, and Betsy comes and sits by the Model T and she says, I believe in you, Ned. There it is. She, I mean, she's she's back. Mm -hmm. OK, so so the, it's it's the reconciliation for you. Sure. Uh, Tom, do you have a different answer? Or same answer. No, I'm pretty much the same. Yeah, I would I would just say it. that's a point where okay, this movie is that's their storyline wraps up there but the climax is the moment where he's like he's defeated a little bit and he's like i think i really have lost her forever 
For me, it's the same thread. It's just a few places. It's just a few steps earlier. Is she going to get... It's not the moment where she reconciles. It's the moment before is the climax. It's that moment where things can go wrong. It's... I, I mean, I'm being a little pedantic, but that's what we do <laughs> when we analyze do you think she tur- I mean, do you think she turns toward... Like, the turning toward... Is that where you think the emotional climax I, I think I think it's when we're waiting for her to get mm. to that car. Mm. It's okay. it's it's what's interesting to me about this romantic climax is the what it ultimately comes down to is her choice. There's nothing he can do to for I, and I don't mean to imply he's right. trying to force her back to him. Right. But it's it is the w- the moment where he has to wait for her to make a decision and really grapples with the thought I could have lost her forever. Ah, and maybe that's really m- smart. That's really smart. That's this really is smart the problem because- I can't fix. Maybe it's semantics because I would say that the climax actually happens with the decision, not the setup for it. So the, so for me the climax is the resolution. But it, I mean, but it is semantics because a climax can last for a long time. Like a climax can be a whole third act. So that doesn't sure. necessarily mean the climax is the resolution. So, uh, well, yeah, what you're saying is pretty interesting. Okay. So that's the romantic one. Then there's the one with the businessman, which has a super fun climax, I yes. think. Uh, so point. Alonzo Hawk, uh, who is the father of... Um, Biff? Biff, Biff Hawk. I was going to say Tommy Kirk, but that's the actor. <laughs> It's so clearly Tommy Kirk um, is uh, bouncing up and down like he's gotten he's gotten the flubber, but he doesn't have the ability to control it. He's he's bouncing up and down. It's it's that's the moment where we actually see of the two climaxes. That's the one that Ned wins. Betsy wins the romantic climax. Ned's the one who wins the climax against. Uh, Alonzo Hawk. Would you agree with me on this, or? That works for me. Well, Ned also wins the romantic climax in that he gets what he wants, unless we somehow decide, which I think there's a case for, that she's not right for him, and it's bad that they end up together. When I mean wins, I mean he he's the active person who, who gotcha. earns it. Gotcha. Um, because I think Betsy makes the decision in that one, and, and maybe he hasn't earned it, but she's given it to him as grace. This one... He clearly wins. Yes. He has Understood. outsmarted Alonzo Hawk, beaten yes. him at his own game. Um, it is, again, a super fun experience, uh, uh, scene. It's another one of my favorites where he's just going up and down and trying to keep his dignity. But it's very clear if he doesn't stop bouncing, this is going to end so badly. One of the guys gonna, says... One of the guys says, at 7 o'clock, he's going to be in serious trouble. <laughs> yes. They do the calculations. They're like, he's going he's gonna to run out of oxygen up there. Uh, so that's pretty great. So those two climaxes, to me, both feel like earned climaxes. We've been going on journeys to them. But I don't know that the movie knows that that's, those are the climaxes. I don't know that they've realized that they've answered every question that we have. Because then we get to this weird third part of the movie. And, and I'm like, there's another 20 minutes here? What's happening? Uh, either one of you want to unpack this one? So there's government funding, right? That's going to come from Flubber. But it's never really... So I'm never really sure that that it is Ned's intent to use this government funding to help Medfield, right? That that's his goal. It just sort of seems like, oh, I should give this to the government instead of this, you know, it seems more altruistic. Oh, he's an idealist. Right. So I should give this to the government. So when the government gets involved, like I said, there's this new, now we've got this whole new thing and it's like, is that going to secure when he goes to the White House or he, you know, flies around the Capitol? Is that going to then save the the college? Because again, it just sort of loses its way. I mean, I guess you could say, "Oh, I'm sure they'll get money and then things will be fine." But I'm like, "Well, Ned invented it, and he invented it in his you know backyard. Why would he give the money to Medfield?" Right? And I and I think it's asking the wrong question here. 
Uh, and I think movies do this often. And I was surprised because the movie had avoided this for most of it. Is we watch a movie to watch characters in the world be altered by their circumstance. But generally speaking, we're not watching it to see how the world in itself is going to like, like the dramatic question here isn't in this movie, what's going to happen to the world when we get flubber? The movie has no interest in answering that question. That would be an entirely different movie, right? Right. But so, so like, I'm not concerned in similar movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I'm the movie is not really concerned about what happens when that technology gets out there. The movie is about the family. This right. movie is clearly supposed to be about Nutty Ned and Betsy. And so the movie, all of the obstacles to them being together are now gone. They are together in a flying car. And the movie wants us to get worried that, you know, the Air Force is going to shoot them down and that this movie is going to end with the wreckage of the car and the dead bodies of Betsy and Ned and like we we end with a very sad the end it's it's the wrong it's the wrong tension for this movie it's also not as fun what well, it's it's like you get a couple of cool shots of him in the flying car and i enjoy that but the whole time i'm thinking this is over the stakes are not real. I can't suddenly be worried about the life and death of these characters when 90% of the movie was just about their romantic relationship, right? They're asking a new question in this third part of the movie, and that's not when you can start asking another question. That question can be there from the beginning, but it can't, it can't just suddenly show up. Now that we've answered the two things that you were invested in, here's another thing for you to care about. It doesn't, it doesn't work structurally. Well, I mean, it could work structurally if you had a three-act structure where the first act was, you know, we, we ask a dramatic question about the, you know, at that point we say, okay, is this question ans answered or does it ask a new question? So you could progressively ask new sure. questions. Or, um, or... Yeah, in the first act, you add a third plot thread. We have two, and you just add three, and they go in tandem. And it wouldn't even have to be as big, but we need some shadowy government figures lurking around from the beginning for this yeah, to okay. pay off the way it does. Um, so just totally agreeing. It's not set up, and it's 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 like Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, great movie, but it has 12 endings. This one just all of a sudden... I mean, this that that last 20 minutes of the movie really should have and could have been the sequel. Right. Yeah. Oh, That's sure. Right. But yeah. you're right, Tom. It could have been set up. I mean, and and, and I think they, it's a real missed opportunity because Betsy's in the room when they're when she's learning, and she is surprised that Medfield doesn't have the funding that it needs. Now she and Ned have teamed up. What if she's the one driving this train? I mean, she's got a lot of real estate in this movie, and yeah. all she cares about when she's flying around in the car is about her hair. Right. <laughs> um, so, I mean, the only bit of progressivism we really have for her is that she's going to continue to work for the president of the college as his secretary after she's married. Right. Wouldn't it be awesome if she were the one saying, I know how we can save Medfield. Yeah. We have to talk to the president. We have to fly to Washington. Right. What we're what we're seeing here is the movie doesn't realize that we're in falling action. It thinks it's building towards another climax. If we want more time with these characters, what we want to see is their life after being married and they're living in a house where every device is now powered by powered by flubber. Uh, you open up the refrigerator door and the ice cubes <laughs> shoot out and bounce around the room right into the drink. Um we, we see that Betsy Betsy has in some way progressed her career. We see that Ned's career, you know, like he's still the same person, but they've worked through his absent mindedness and they've gotten they've gotten into a routine that is healthy for both of them, allows her to get his attention when she needs it. Uh, some something we want to see there if we want to see anything. And I don't know that we need to. We want to see the falling action of their lives not the falling action of the planet. Right. Right. And and that's where I think this movie makes a misstep. I think if you stop watching this movie 20 minutes in, you've uh, not 20 minutes in, with 20 minutes to go, 
uh, you've seen everything you need to see. Correct. It's uh, well, I mean, and the good news here is that the resolution is that he does marry Betsy, and that that gets done, right? <laughs> because yes. if that didn't happen, we'd be in real trouble. Exactly. Yes. Uh, okay, so that's plot. Uh, let's shift over to talking about the characters. Uh, and uh, shall we start with uh, Professor Ned Brainerd? Let's do it. Um, one of the things that he says is, I, I love it. one of his first lines is, I'm trying to solve the secrets of the new universe and failing miserably. <laughs> I love that. And I also love his name, right? It's brain and nerd, kind of a smash of that. So that's cool. Well, is it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, I'm actually the person who doesn't like it when names mean things. Um, uh, in that, uh, that directly, um, like with a name like Brainerd, was on the nose, but you know, he wasn't going to be the quarterback of the football team. He was going to be playing D and D with me. There was no that's right. option. That's right. His last name is Brainerd. The thing I love about this character, and it's something I noticed, um, because he is so like he's got all this stuff going on inside his head and how would you show that in a very lonely with a very lonely character right i mean if he doesn't have a lot he doesn't have a best man to drag him to his wedding right he just has charlie his dog yeah. and charlie is great because ned yes. tells charlie everything yeah. which is how we get to know what's going on inside ned's brain exactly right so it's, it's a like great little device there with that character it's like the soccer ball in Castaway. I mean, you have to have, when a character's alone, they still have to have somebody around to, <laughs> to talk to so we know what the hell's going on. That's <laughs> right. That's right. And Ned doesn't do anything. I mean, the thing about Ned is his character fundamentally doesn't change all that much. Like, he's always about his invention. He's always about science. He's always about this new kind of energy. And he doesn't really do anything except to get Betsy back, except double down on who he is. You know, I would, I would throw out here and, you know, maybe we're dipping into protagonist problems, but uh, I, I think I'll put it in now. Anyway, the issue with Ned is it isn't clear that it's possible for him to overcome his character flaw. And we were talking yeah. about this a little bit earlier and the movie tries to have it both ways. They tr they want us on his side, so they let us know he's not in control of himself. But at the same time, the rest of the world absolutely treats his absent-mindedness as him not focused, him not paying attention. And, you know, for, I, I think that is problematic in our modern understanding of how the human brain works. But what I don't actually get from this movie is that the problem that has driven Ned and Betsy apart has been solved. Like, he solved Flubber. He hasn't solved the Betsy problem. He realized he makes a mistake and he tries to go back to where he was. But what is the road for the future of them? Is he going to miss is he going to miss the birth of his first child? I would put money that he would. Is he going to is is she going to have an important day where she wins an award and is he going to show up? I'm going to bet he's not coming. Shelby'll be there. Shelby'll always so, be yes. there. <laughs> which, which we know from the sequel because we know from the sequel that that's true. So, well, here's but what you're saying is correct and I guess from a plot standpoint it's a problem, but I don't think his problem needs to be solved. And I think the problem with he and Betsy is that she's trying to change him. And I don't think he needs to be changed. And what is love? It's accepting someone for who they are as opposed mm -hmm. to trying to change them, right? And right. so the true resolution, love romance-wise, would be Betsy accepting him for who he is and understanding He's probably not going to be there when I have my when we have the baby or when I win my award, but I love him anyway. And there are all these wonderful things about him that I get from him, so I accept him as is, as opposed to trying to change him. And I agree with you, but that kind of makes it in a weird way. Like that's that's the sort of realization your protagonist is supposed to come come across. And Betsy's not the protagonist of this movie. Maybe she should be. 
Yeah. Maybe she should have more of a protagonist function here. But I would say I would say this is very similar to me. And we'll talk about this later this season when we talk about Toy Story 2, like the Buzz Lightyear problem. If you get rid of the thing that makes the character fun, his absent-mindedness is what makes this character fun. What you're left with is a boring character. So you don't want to solve it. Um, I'm, I'm completely with you, Tom. Like, we don't actually want to see him get... We don't want to see him get better. I just... I just... I don't think they've... Again, I, I said this earlier. I would love to see in some way that they figured it out. And I, I and better than better than I'm just going to have to deal with who he is. But that's love. That's grace. I think you're trying to shove the movie into a very traditional plot movie structure. Sure. And, and I'm, I'm starting to sense that as much as I didn't like the movie as a child, I actually love it now. So when I saw it for the first time in 25 years, a year ago, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how much I love this movie, even with the problems we're talking about. And I totally agree, just cut the last 20 minutes off. But one of the things I find very original and interesting about it is that it's not as conventional yeah. as a lot of other movies. What you're talking about being a very specific part of that. And I, I just find that very endearing, that it doesn't follow the typical... The main character has to learn a message, all that, you know, has to change. Anyway, that, that's, that's one of the things I find you, kind of interesting about it. I guess the thing that I'm rebelling against, and then and then let me shove it over to Andy, because uh, the thing that I'm rebelling against here is the idea that it's the woman's role in the relationship to adapt to her partner and make the relationship work. And I look, look, it's 1961. How, how progressive is this movie going to be? He wants to do better, and that counts for a lot with me. But I, I would take even a baby step, Andy. I, well, I, they have to find they have to find their groove as a couple, right? Because she she thinks she has ideas about even her boss has ideas about what. Um, and let's just let's just talk to about Betsy, right? Um, sure. she she has to kind of fit this mold. Um, I think it would be awesome if she just continued to bust out of it. You know, um, I think that's one thing that she's long suffering, right? Um, she's, she, you know, women can be secretaries, nurses, housewives, teachers, and care about their hair. Right. And that's what they get to do in this. So many flavors era. of women. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I, but I think there's, you know, they're flirting with this idea of, her being a partner to his work yeah. and that being really important. But I don't think, I wish it would go a little farther. I can, can I also say, because of, of something else I've said, I, I'm not trying to say that she is the one who needs to change and adapt to him. That's not what I'm sure. saying. No, 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 no. I'm saying she, she at some point, if, she, if they're going to have a good relationship, the way that he has done with her, I think she just needs to accept who he is. That doesn't mean it, or, probably realistically realize this is not the man for me. Okay. Right. Um, so, so again, I'm not, I, for me, it's the, it is a more progressive idea that you just, ex all right, if this is the man I love and this is who I'm going to, or the person I love or the, you know, partner that I'm going to be with the rest of my life to a large degree, I need to accept their foibles as well as their, uh, wonderful traits and not try to change them every day. And then get like, at this point, it's stupid for her to get angry that he misses the third wedding. It's like, what right. did you expect was going to happen? Particularly when I, you're not helping him get there. Right. And the, th the thing about Betsy's character that I, I wish could be, I, I just, I think there's a version of this movie where she is the protagonist. Sure. And he's the antagonist, right? I think that that, and it almost is almost set up that way with the opening scene at the wedding, right? Right. At, for if, if, we didn't see him in the prologue. Well, and, you know, Disney has that thing where they'll show us the antagonist in the prologue, and then we get the, the protagonist. Yeah. In the, so there's a version where she's a protagonist, and honestly, I think it would have been a better movie. I want to I throw out an idea here, which is, huh, how do I want to say this? I want to say, I think Betsy gets a bad rap in this movie. We, we, when we first meet her, 
we see her at her worst and not at her best. And she is understandably at her worst. No one at her wedding expected Ned to show up. She's the only one who believed that he would. And in front of everyone, she's humiliated when once again, for the third consecutive time, she's been stood up at the altar. She's humiliated. She is justifiably angry. But because of all that, we never get to see the Betsy that Ned fell in love with in the first place. Right. And I I think she comes off uh, as a I think she comes off as shrewish because we we see all the things that are sweet about Ned and we never get to see the things that are sweet about Betsy. I believe they exist in the universe of sure. this movie. It's Nancy Olson. She's delightful. Yeah. Person. I mean, but I don't he, think it's justified her anger, which is why we are seeing her at her worst and being a shrew, because by the third time, her anger is no longer justified. Yeah. She just, she. Right. No, I'm, I'm with you. All right. I, like, you got to learn at a certain point. Uh, this, this isn't working. Have the wedding in his garage. That's exactly. where he is. Yeah. Have yeah, okay. Shelby pick him up. Yeah. So, but I'm I'm just agreeing that we see her at her worst. She is not the most likable main female character um, of a Disney movie. For sure. No, right. All right, Shelby Ashton, played okay. by Elliot Reed. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I already called him a pick fight. me boys. So. I'm gonna no, I'm gonna pick a fight here. <laughs> You're right, Larry. Shelby. You're right. Go ahead and say it. Go ahead and say it. I'm gonna right. say Shelby is the better man for Betsy. Amen. That's true. He is, the thing that he is, is he is totally focused on her, on her needs. Yes, she doesn't love him. And yes, he should read her body language more and move on. I am with you on all of that. Mm-mm. But if no, the I mean thing, the minute the minute she disses Shakespeare, he's out of there. <laughs> right, sure, sure. But but like really, she's dissing him. She's 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 making it very clear he's not viable for her, and that's and that's great. And I and I enjoy that. She has kind of let him think he was in the number two spot. She 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 may do it because she's trying to annoy Ned. Uh, Shelby, will you take me home? Shelby, will you take me to the dance? She may be doing it for the wrong reasons, but I'm going to say always if have we a spare, right? I yes. Mean, well, so all right. If so we now, are... we've, now we've established she's she's shrewish and she's a user. She yeah. uses people. I'm Ooh. saying if we are going to forgive, she can't drive herself anywhere. She's 1961. You don't let a she can't drive a car with a dude. If if she's going to forgive Ned for being absent-minded and not uh, focused on her. I think we need to be able to forgive Shelby for being totally focused on her. He's trying to give her what she says she wants. It's true. Yeah. It's true. He's he doesn't creepy. say so creepy. Oh, so anything creepy. about Ned that isn't really true. And it, but, So I just have to say, again, with these Disney movies, they don't give us the Ralph Bellamy characters, right? In the romantic comedies of the 40s and 50s, right. who are great right. people that there's nothing wrong with them except they're a little boring and not right for the female, right? Yeah. But in these Disney movies, they make sure we don't like these people, right? No ambiguity. <laughs> <laughs> he, no, is he, a vul- he is a romantic vulture. He may be the perfect person for her, but he's a creepy pick-me-boy. I think you know, we've decided like- there is a third person out there in the world who was the right person for her. Maybe like a combo of the two, the best yeah. traits of both these guys. Maybe that's the sequel. Or the maybe that'll be my modern pitch version. Anyway, well, but there I think there's something to be said from Shelby is who Betsy says she wants. She wants someone who will yeah. focus on her, uh-huh. and Ned is who she actually wants. And I don't, I I think it is partly her fault that Shelby stays in this movie as long as he does. She is not strong enough at discouraging him. We can forgive him for misreading it if he's she's always asking him to take her places. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. All right, Alonzo Hawk, my favorite character of this movie. Keen oh, he's great. Son, son of Edwin, who is one of my, literally one of my favorite Disney villains ever. Um, he's greedy, he's willing to cheat. Um, 
He's a scourge on the community. (laughs) He's he's also, I find, admirably honest about who he is and what he's doing. He doesn't hide it. My favorite moment is when he talks to his son. His son, like, comes up with, like, a little bit of a scheme. And Alonzo goes, son, maybe maybe there's something in you that's like me after all. He's so proud when Biff comes up with that little evil scheme about switching the cars. Cars, Uh, um, And Biff is sort of Hawk's Charlie, right? Um, Because we know what's going on with Hawk because of the way he spells things out with his boy. Yes. So we know what's going on there. And it's kind of... And, 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 you know, Tommy Kirk's this, the Biff character's this all-American boy. He doesn't have much ambition outside of bouncing a ball, right? Um, and he does add this key exposition in important moments. And he, he is the one who has the idea to steal the car. Yeah. yeah. But dad's the one that says, that's genius. Let's carry that out. Uh, but, but I mean, you know, Alonzo is the malevolent force in this. Alonzo oh, sure. Hawk oh, is yeah. the malevolent force in this movie. Uh, you know, tries to buy the the flubber when he can't buy it. He steals it. Uh, he he crosses every line. He bets against his own his son's own team to make a few more bucks. I mean, there there is that's no the line that's to me absolute yeah. worst. Uh-huh. There is no line he does not cross. It's his college that he graduated from, and he's still willing to have it shut down. Uh, and yet, I find him delightful. Uh, it just, I agree with you guys. Shelby is loathsome, and you want to throw stuff at that guy. Uh, but Alonzo is fun. He's a fun villain. He's doing. He's he's he, he's so gleeful in making mischief. You know, he's enjoying it. He's having a good time. And imagine, imagine if he loved Betsy, and what? while still being evil and doing all these things, was Shelby-ish in that he was focused on her and adored her and he's wealthy. So he's sending her presents. Like there's a whole world where she ends up with him. And that's, and that's a great point because if you mix those two things together, I don't think you come away with an antagonist. You can enjoy as much. No, no. Um, no. I, Uh -uh. I think, I think if he would, yeah, I think we would just really hate him, but, but hate him in a way where we don't want to see him. Unless, unless we realize she shouldn't be with Ned. Um, and there's maybe someone else on the scene who's always loved him for who he is yeah. and and should be the one that he the, the person he's never focused on at all and maybe he sees her for the first time for real. I mean I'm I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you on all of that. Can I can I talk about Biff for a second? Oh sure. Biff is so messy a character that I'm sure Tom will love the messiness of him. <laughs> because he is inconsistent in where his loyalties are and what's important to him at any given moment. You mean he's a teenager? Well, (laughs) I mean, but but even even by teen standards, there are times... (laughs) So, the first time we meet him, Alonzo and Biff are going to confront Ned because Ned failed Biff because Biff doesn't do the work in class. So our first thing is like, oh, Biff is this privileged teen who's spoiled, who daddy fights all his fights for him. But then in that meeting, Biff is like, dad, please don't make a big deal out of this. He's right. I did fail this class. Um, It's for the benefit of the audience because we didn't see that scene that we know that, you know, Ned did the right thing in this scene and it would be wrong uh, to change it just because Alonzo's a wealthy donor. In the basketball game, by the way, I I love Tommy Kirk. I do not believe that he is the star of that basketball team or that his presence on the court would have helped them win against the other college. That other that other college has giants on their team. Um and and Medfield Medfield has been like, hey, anybody who wants to play will put you on the court. Yeah, I mean but, the other team is the equivalent of the Globetrotters, right? I mean oh enormous. Like, <laughs> awesome, it's, great scene. There's the no one single player. There's no one single player who's going to take them to victory. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. But but uh, he's he's upset with his dad there, and yet you know he, at the same time he recognizes his father as terrible. 
Sometimes he's also terrible. Sometimes he loves his father. When his father is at the end bouncing up and down, like, and could possibly die, I unless you know you're in a comedy movie. Tommy Kirk okay. thinks it's the funny... Uh, it's not Tommy Kirk. Biff Hawk thinks it's the funniest thing ever that his dad is, like, scared for his life and bouncing up and down. He's all over the map here. And I'm not saying... I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying I mean, it's a different messy. Movie. There's a different movie here where Biff is the protagonist and he learns these great lessons about his dad's way yep. of... Uh, cheating his way through life and Brainerd's way of exploration and curiosity and doing the work. Right. But that's not this movie. And I think, I think what, what Tommy Kirk does is he's just sort of a mirror for, I think the function of this character is, is just sort of a mirror of, of opposites um, to show us like, Oh, I could go with that. You know, he's sort of an engine in a way but he doesn't really, he's not a consistent one. I would agree with you. He's not consistent. I just find him so likable. The character. Oh, I do too. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you could do a whole episode on just Tommy Kirk, the actor, because he uh, had a, oh, so fantastic. a very interesting so, life, though. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Well, let's talk about the real villain of this movie, who is Mrs. Chatsworth, um, <laughs> Belle Montrose. Um, she was part of the comedy team of Alan and Montrose um, on the Orpheum vaudeville circuit in the early 1900s. She's also the mother of Steve Allen, um, who's the first host of The Tonight Show. Um, and if you look carefully, you can kind of see a resemblance between her and Steve Allen, I think. But she, the reason I call her the villain of this movie is that she has shirked her responsibilities. Um, and without her failure, of course, we have no story. But if you knew that your charge had missed two weddings, wouldn't you kind of handcuff yourself oh to him to get him to the altar? <laughs> Something like it doesn't it drive you crazy. When I was like, like, it really drives me nuts. My the seven year old version of me, who I said was for, so for, I, I would lie awake at nights wondering what was going through her mind when she left that house. It's like, what could you be thinking? Yes, no. Okay, I'm going to point out, she is not his mom. (laughs) She is his employee. And she tries several times to get him to go. He doesn't go. Is she getting overtime for this? She gets a promise for him that says, I promised that sweet girl. I'm like, you promised, then you better, like, you know, get him in the car, drive to the church and say, We have a problem again. Could you please, like, how about everybody just come? I mean, it's, it, it was very negligent at best, negligent. And Mm -hmm. I I would push towards Andy's thing of it's far beyond negligent (laughs) and a true villainous, like, like Ursula villainous. (laughs) Wow. That she left him in that garage. Wow. Why am I? Why I love am that I our inner seven-year-old is so similar, Tom. I think it's great. I think it's great. I do say it's a missed opportunity that we don't get uh, significant flubber-related incidents with her. She is su- such a perfect straight person to do oh, yeah. hijinks against. Very true. Um, and deserving uh, so of much- hijinks now. I, I I just think it would be fun to like watch her bounce all over the place. Uh, I, I think we'd have a really good time with that. I do think she does redeem herself a little bit, though, when she tells him to go to the dance, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in a way, she kind of, you know, kicks him that way, which is good. All right. So um, let's talk for this is let's talk a little bit about protagonist problems. Um, this is definitely a movie with that kind of omnipresent omniscient POV, right? We get to see lots of different kinds of people relate to Brainerd. Brainerd, I think the movie thinks he's the protagonist. Um, We've talked about that a little bit. As he he loses his girl, he tries to get things to get Betsy back, but he's still far more interested in the science than he is in his fiance. But I'm going to posit with you that Betsy's the one, again, who has to become more understanding of Ned and not Ned sacrificing for Betsy. But what would he Wait. sacrifice? I mean, what? Like, I mean, what would he, he do? needs? I think there needs to be a moment. I think what I'm missing, and and maybe this goes back to what Larry was talking about earlier and arguing about. But I think there is a point where he has to sort of make up for missing these weddings more than just bringing the flowers to the desk. 
So the, the decision yeah. point that we need to see in a traditional movie is he has to make a choice between does he go for the flubber or does he go for his for his woman? Yeah. Like when it comes down to it, if if Betsy's uh, on one side of a seesaw overlooking the Grand Canyon and the recipe for flubber and all his notes are there, which one is he going to choose? If you put this movie in the position that it's a love triangle, not with Shelby, but Betsy, his love of science, uh, are uh, two opposites, then then in a protagonist role, he has to choose her over him. It's not positioned that way. In this no, even if he thinks he has to do it, and, and if he thinks he has to choose one or the other, when in reality, he gets to have both, right? He gets to incorporate both. Yeah. I think... Yeah, I think it's just sort of a missed opportunity with the protagonist. Well, and, and that's true, but it's also who is this protagonist, and do we want him to change, or do we like him? Because in one sense, it's 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 like asking Sheldon on Big Bang Theory to change, and he's incapable of it. And we don't want right. him to change, right? Because no. then he's not Sheldon anymore. Um, but, so but he has I, to have choices, and I, like I never see him. I see again. It's one of those things where you see the protagonist and things sort of happen to them, or he gets this idea to demonstrate flubber, um, but it doesn't have the desired effect that he wants. I don't know. Maybe I'm off, but it doesn't seem like he's making active choices to get Betsy back more than he's. Well, you know what? Now I've talked myself out of it. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll pick up the ball a little bit, Andy, which is okay. which is essentially what we're saying here is um, he he's doing a lot of work to repair damage that he's done. Um, mm -hmm. And that's admirable. That's admirable. There is no there's no scene where he tells her the most important thing in my life is you. Right. I love my work. And I'm passionate about my work, but we need the scene where, you know, even if I can't always give you my attention because my brain doesn't work that way, you're not always in my brain. You're always in my heart and you are always yeah. my priority. It's just that's it. I, I don't know. I, that, I, I don't do know more. that 1961 filmmaking has evolved to that point. Well, it's, but... well, ho, ho, it's not only that you're you're 100 percent right, but there is a, a reason that scene is not there. Because that's not true. She is not the most important thing to him. She's just not. And and so what we're left with is a movie where she's like, I realize that science is his true love, and I I will get the scraps that are left. And that's what I don't like. Yeah. Or she's going to have to join him in that and make it a, a team project in order to get all of him. Yeah. And again, this isn't going to happen right. in 61, but one of the best romantic comedies in the world is my best friend's wedding, which does not end with them getting together. Right. And it was so innovative when that happened many, many years later. But I mean, I think we're all realizing that these two people really shouldn't be together. And again, son of flubber, the sequel a hundred percent proves that they shouldn't be together because he's driving her absolutely insane. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about some themes. Um, what do you guys have for themes of this movie? This is not about redemptive love. Um, I mean, I, I feel... I want to say that this movie is about love. I don't think that it is. I think it's a movie about focus. Um, and, and how you need to see everything around you in order to appreciate... Like, he's got a micro view of the world. He only sees what's in his field of vision. And... I, I think it's a movie that posits you can't live life that way, uh, that that you need to be able to see the bigger picture. Do I think that they were intending to articulate this theme? I I don't know. I, I think that that's me trying to put something on this movie that maybe isn't there. I would agree. And I would say that part of the problems we're discussing are coming from the fact that I don't think they gave theme a moment's thought. They were trying no. to craft a supremely enjoyable, audience-pleasing movie, which, as an adult now, I totally agree that they did. And I remember, as you know, back then as a child, not when it came out, but but watching it years later, just how the audience would react to it. And I think that's all they really cared about. And it certainly paid off. I mean, it was a phenomenal hit. 
Right. Yeah. The special effects. I think there's a passion over romance. I think we kind of talked about that a little bit where the science really is more important. Like, yeah, I think that's what he chooses. And I think that she's just going to have to get over it and decide that that's what, if that's what they want. Um, there's also this idea of inventiveness and openness over uh, greedy capitalism. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Always. No, nope, I would. Sharing. I, I also think there, this is another movie that believes that, um, greediness is the aberration and that most men are noble and men of principle. Um, I do, I do think that, that we see we're we're meant to see, um, Alonzo as the one who really doesn't fit in with the world more so than Ned does. Ned doesn't because his mind puts him apart. I think Alonzo's amorality is supposed to be atypical in this world because uh, people don't believe it of him. People see the best in him because they they all they're all people looking to see the best in everyone, and that's why Alonzo's gotten away with things. It's not a cynical world. It's it's a greatest generation world that we're living in yeah. in this movie. Yeah, for sure. All right, pitch time. Oh no! So before the pitch, this, can I throw oh, something oh, yeah. the pitch? Sure. Yes. I, I just want to laud Robert Stevenson. Um, and because one of the reasons I fell in love with this movie a year ago when I watched it after a long time was just how beautifully directed it is, which I think is one of the reasons he got a DGA nomination. And when you hear about the best directors of all time, Hitchcock, William Wyler, Howard Hawks, John Ford, you never hear this man's name. And yet in the 70s, he was the most successful director of all time before Spielberg and his like sort of making so much money. He had done so well. Um, and of course, you know, beautifully directed Mary Poppins. But if you look back at his career, he made so many interesting, different, great movies. And his directing here is, is just perfect. And there are so many movies that mimic this movie. And I'm just going to name one. When you see E.T. and Elliot oh. fly across the moon and you're like, wow, how wonderful is that? It's like, oh yeah, but that was done before in Absent-Minded Professor. So... Right. Uh, and, and there, there are specific shots even that are almost exactly the same. And, and that happens in a lot of movies. So I think he's a wonderful director and I do find this particular movie really beautifully crafted from a director. I want to second that. I, I also want to say yeah. the effects in this movie. Yes. I oh. know by today's oh, yeah. standards, we would do them all differently. They 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 land every oh, yeah. the, that basketball game. Yeah. Yes, I know they're speeding up. I I know there's uh, wires. I know I know how they're doing all of it. It's still fun to watch. Yeah, it's that basketball game could go on for another fifteen minutes. I would not get tired of it. It's so fun and visually interesting. And I no, could I watch. Can, it. Yeah, and, and I have a lot of respect for, again with Poppins, and and I have a ton of respect for uh, mechanical. Uh, special effects yeah. and dog training, right? Yeah. Charlie's great. I could also watch so. him torture Shelby with jumping on his car, the cards. I could watch that forever. <laughs> oh, that's so fun. <laughs> and it's wonderful how awesome. it, it's wonderful how it pays off because it pays off with Hawk in the car. And then it pays uh -huh. off in the sequel where Shelby once again hits the same car again. That poor cop, all he does is drive around town and get smashed by cars. <laughs> so great. same cop same all cop. right all right now for the pitch so given this movie and son of flubber there were two tv versions of absent-minded professor with harry anderson that were made in the late 80s uh and of course the 1997 robin williams remake flubber which i think is worth your time um what would we do with this franchise um who wants so to go first I'll go. I'll go first. I'll, I'll. I'll tell you. I wish I had spent time. I wish I had known about the expanded universe that of of Mid, of Medford High and Alonzo Hawk and all of that. Because I think I could have come up with something great that is a straight. What if Herbie got Flubber? Or there's a straight line between those things. Um, but the pitch I prepared for this is, I want to see the world that Professor Brainerd uh, built. I want to see Flubtopia. I want to yeah. see the world. It's it's a different science fiction world than we've ever seen before. Everything works off of bouncing. We've harnessed the power of pure raw kinetic bouncing energy, uh, 
and and I want a wild world in which everyone's car is flying based on flubber, where people are bouncing to work. Uh, I, I every device has flubber, where the solution to every problem, the first thing that everyone says is put flubber on it. That's what I want. I, I want to see what that world it. is like. That's my flub topia. That's good. All right. Um, it's not that original. Mine would be gender switching it and, you know, having the professor uh, be a woman in today's world. And I would have them not end up together at the end. Uh, and I was thinking uh, that was my pitch before we even started talking about it today. I just I just think that, uh, you know, um, either either. But that's the way I would end it, that they don't end up together or that the guy who is continually frustrated by his science girlfriend, um, somehow accepts who she is. Because uh, that, that's what I wish I'd gotten from Betsy a little bit more here. I, I mm-hmm. Anyway, so that just a gender switch, I think, would be fun. I also went with the gender switch. Um, and I, I said, okay, it's 2026, and Flubber's been long since forgotten. Um, the Okay, so the U.S. government, they sat on the patent, did nothing with it. Surprise, surprise. Um, <laughs> Medfield College is closing its doors at the end of the spring semester, and they're clearing out a lot of old stuff. And there's a mm. lowly, mm. current science adjunct professor who stumbles on a time capsule that Brainerd puts put together with a secret formula for Flubber in it. And she knows how helpful Flubber could be for a new moon expedition. And she's all in as Brainerd ever was and maybe more. And of course, nobody listens to her because she's female faculty and lowly adjunct, right? So she has to use Flubber to make things happen. Very good. But I also like the idea of having that keeping and retaining that dual those dual storylines. Yeah. Because I think that's that's really where the magic is in this movie, for sure. There's a Medfield historical movie out there, too. Because when you think of all the things that came out of Medfield College, from Flubber oh, yeah. to Invisibility to The Strongest Man <laughs> in the World to The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, I mean, there was some interesting stuff going on at Medfield College over the years. And I bet there's a lot more stories back there of things that happened down in that basement. Who knows what's in the basement? <laughs> that's all. That's, a, that, that's my pitch. There's a horror movie. So Medfield has closed. <laughs> Medfield has closed and it's abandoned. And five unlucky teenagers have a flat and they go down into the basement. And who knows what they're going to find in the basement of Medfield College. I love it. I love it. That's brilliant. Tom, thank you so much for being here. Always a thanks for so, having That's always a, oh, such a, it's pleasure. a treat. Is a treat. What movie are we tackling next week, Larry? Andy, we are doing The Black Cauldron. Oh, fun! It, Yay! I, I'm so excited. You know, as I've I, never seen it, well, so I'm excited. I was a big fan of the books growing up. The Book of Three, The Black Cauldron, um, mm-hmm. and when that when the movie came out, I was so excited to see it because I'd been I'd been waiting for this uh, for for so long in my mind. Does it hold up? I, I, we'll find out. We'll watch it this week. All my, right. my remembering is my sister cried through that movie sitting next to me. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. From terror, like because uh, <laughs> that and Return to Oz. Those were the two movies that was. I, that, I have never seen Return to Oz, and I'm dying to see that movie because I hear it is so bizarre and scary. And that's why it was. A oh, it's so Xanadu, friend. It's, it's great. It's great. It's okay. great. Well, if you like what you're hearing, will you do us a favor and share this podcast with another Disney or classic movie fan? And please check out our Once Upon a Disney Facebook page. Tweet us at, at Andy Redwine or at Larry Brenner 6 or drop us a line in our mailbag at Once Upon a Disney Podcast at gmail.com. So until next time, friends, see you real soon. See you real soon.